Well, last week I provided an introduction to the book of Ephesians, uh, rooted in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This week we'll be moving on from the introduction, and over the next three weeks we'll be dealing with the whole section of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, which highlight the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. Over the next three weeks we'll emphasize that part of our salvation which is particularly ascribed to the Father, that part of our salvation which is particularly ascribed to the Son, and that part of our salvation which is particularly ascribed to the Spirit, which if you look carefully is the structure of Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14. Today we're focusing particularly in on verses 3 to 6, and we're dealing with that part of our salvation which is particularly ascribed to God the Father. And we'll see in this text that it is the work of planning our salvation, which is particularly ascribed to God the Father. And as we look at the Father's role in planning our salvation, we're inescapably confronted here with the biblical doctrine of election. You see that even here in this text before us, Ephesians 1, 3-6, begins by establishing that our salvation flows from God the Father's initiative. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Look at verse 3. If you trace that back, it says, God the Father. Right? So he's blessed us in Christ, but all the blessings that we receive, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, originate with God our Father. And so, um, Ephesians 1, 3-6 begins by establishing that our salvation flows from God the Father's initiative, that is, according to His plan, and then immediately, Ephesians 1, 3-6, goes on to speak about the Father's choosing. Right after that. Even as He chose us, verse 4, in Him before the foundation of the world. And so the doctrine of election will be at the forefront of our examination of the Father's plan of salvation. Because the doctrine of election is at the forefront of Paul's thinking as he considers the Father's plan of salvation. I saw a video clip a few years ago in which someone uh, in the audience at a conference asked a pastor named John MacArthur, do you believe in the election? And I tried to find the clip so that I could quote John MacArthur exactly, um, but I was unable, so I'll have to paraphrase his answer. But he said something like this, of course I do. That word is in the Bible, <laughs> right? So he's right. The words election and choice are clearly in the Bible, even in the text right before us. It talks about the Father choosing. And so any discussion of the biblical doctrine of election must not center on whether or not there is such a thing as election in the Bible. Whether there is such a thing as God the Father choosing. Uh, rather, the discussion that we must have is what the biblical doctrine of election is. Not whether there is one, because the plain is, we find the words elect, election, choosing in the Bible. We must consider what the biblical doctrine of election is. So let's consider three things this morning as we look at God's planning of our salvation. First, we'll look at a biblical definition of election drawn from this passage. Secondly, we'll look at some misapplication and misunderstandings of the biblical doctrine of election. And then we're going to close with three good applications of the biblical doctrine of election. So here we go. A biblical definition of election drawn from this passage. Now obviously, in trying to define what the biblical doctrine of election is, we could go to Romans 9, which is a chapter which is specifically about the doctrine of election. That's actually the reason for which uh, the first chunk of Romans 9 is written. 
Paul is explaining the nature of the doctrine of election. Or we can look at other passages which touch on it, uh, or we can look at every passage together that speaks about God's choosing and try to build a comprehensive biblical doctrine of election. But those passages are not in view this morning. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6 this morning. So let's focus in especially on these verses and look what, at what Paul says about election here specifically. The first thing that Paul says about election here in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3 to 6 is that God has chosen some individuals and not others for salvation. This is a necessary implication of the statement in verse 4 where Paul says God has chosen us in Him, etc., etc. Who is this us that Paul is referring to? Is it humanity in general? Is it people in a particular geographical location? Is it uh, particular ethnic groups from among humanity? It cannot be argued on a biblical basis that Paul has all humans in mind when he says that God has chosen us in verse 4. It cannot be argued biblically because that would lead to universalism. If God has chosen us, and by us Paul means we humans, that would lead to universalism. Because to claim that all humans have been chosen in the sense that Paul uses the word chosen in Ephesians chapter 4 uh, would be implying that all humans are recipients of every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That all humans uh, are going to become holy and blameless and that all humans will be adopted as God's sons. So if you, if you try to import everyone, literally every person without exception, into the us in verse 4, it leads to literally every human being uh, having been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places uh, in order in Christ before the foundation of the world that they should be holy and blameless before Him. Uh, it leads to every single person ever created being predestined for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of His will. And so biblically you can't make the case that us refers to all human beings. On the contrary, when Paul says that in verse 4 that he has chosen us, he does not have humanity in general in mind. So does God have then a subset of humanity in mind? Necessarily so. Obviously if it's not all, it must be some. Right? So, so what kind of sum is it then that Paul has in mind? Is it all Ephesian citizens? All Roman citizens? Is it all people of a certain ethnicity? Right away, again, you see a problem here. If Paul is saying us, referring to, let's say, all residents of ancient Asia, where he was and where the Ephesian church was, that would mean, again, that all residents of ancient Asia have been blessed in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every resident of ancient Asia were chosen by him before the foundation of the world that they should be holy and blameless before Him. Every resident of ancient Asia was predestined for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. You see? And that breaks down biblically as well. Because we know for a fact that um, there were those who were not believers. We read about them in the New Testament who lived in that geographical area. We can't say that it's all Jews. We can't say that it's all Gentiles. We can't say that it's all black people. We can't say that it's all white people. We can't say that it's uh, everyone from this continent and that, not that continent, and so on and so forth. 
And so you see, by process of elimination here, it can't be all human beings, and it can't be all who belong to a particular demographic group. Or you would have salvation um, by virtue of being a human, or you would have salvation by virtue of being in a certain geographical area, or you would have salvation by being of a certain ethnicity. And so when Paul says us in verse 4, he cannot be referring to all humans in general, nor can he be referring to all people in a particular place, nor can he be referring to all people of a particular ethnicity. And so when Paul says that he has chosen us, we must see that the us are individuals from among different people groups, from within a certain geographical area, uh, from within the pool of humanity, who have been um, chosen to receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, uh, who have been um, chosen in order to be holy and blameless, and who have been predestined for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. And so, um, by implication, Paul here is demonstrating that God has chosen some individuals and not others for salvation. That's clear by, by the fact that not everybody is saved. Right? Some individuals are, some individuals aren't. Not all people of a certain demographic are, um, and not all people of a certain geographical location are. So clearly, clearly when Paul says in verse 4, he doesn't have groups of people in mind. He has individuals in mind. Uh, and these elect individuals comprise a group of elect people, all of whom have been chosen by God to receive every spiritual blessing, to become holy and blameless, and to become God's sons, etc. So God has chosen some individuals and not others for salvation. Now let me pause here and say, all Christians should agree on that, because to think otherwise would necessarily lead to universalism. Uh, if some individuals um, were, uh, pardon me, if all individuals are chosen for salvation, all individuals would be saved. So what I've said now actually should not be contentious or controversial among Christians. All, all I've said so far is that Paul is clear that some individuals have been chosen by God for salvation and under other individuals have not. And if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, it's clear that the choosing and salvation go together. Those who are chosen will be saved. Those who are not chosen will not be saved. That's just, that's just what he's saying here. That salvation stems from God's choosing. That's what Paul is saying. That's his train of thought here in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, so, what I've said so far is actually not controversial among Christians. Um, the next question that we need to address, though, however, is this. Is God's choice of some individuals and not others dependent upon a difference in the people themselves? In other words, is this election of some individuals unto salvation and not others dependent upon a difference in the people themselves? Is it unconditional or conditional? Is this election of some people to receive salvation based on a condition that these people meet or is it not? That's the next question. And that's historically the way the debate has been framed. Again, as I said at the beginning, the words election and choice are in the Bible. God did choose people, for sure. Any Bible-believing Christian has to say that because Ephesians 1.4 says that. So the question isn't, did God choose people? The question is, what is the manner of God's choosing? What is the nature of God's choosing? And historically, the debate, therefore, has not been, did God choose or did God not choose? 
the debate has been, did God choose conditionally or did God choose unconditionally? Um, and Paul makes it clear, even in this passage, uh, let alone in other passages of Scripture, that election is unconditional. It's not conditioned upon um, anything in the people, the objects of God's choice. Now you might wonder where I'm seeing that in this passage, since the word unconditional is not there. But keep in mind that uh, even when a word is not in the passage, the idea might be there. Like, the Trinity is a classic example of that. You won't find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. But the idea is clearly there, and everyone who's not a heretic knows that the idea of the Trinity is clearly there in the Bible. Right? And so, when we look at a, a passage of Scripture, we're not only looking for explicit words, but we're looking to understand um, the assumptions that are inherent in the passage, the implications of the passage, the applications of the passage, so on and so forth. Um, so, the word unconditional is not here in this passage, but the idea of unconditional election is very much here in this passage. Let me explain three arguments for unconditional election from this passage. First is that those who were chosen in Ephesians chapter 1-4 were chosen that we should be holy and blameless. Look at it. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, which means in order that, we should be holy and blameless before him. So as Charles Hodge says, if then, pardon me, if election is for holiness, then holiness cannot in any form be the ground of election. If men are chosen to be holy, they cannot have been chosen because they are holy. Right? So to restate that in the opposite order, God cannot have chosen people because of holiness if, that was, if it is that God was choosing people in order to make them holy. So the fact that the passage tells us that people were chosen to be holy by implication tells us that they were not chosen because of their holiness. And it's, you might have missed uh, this little phrase in Hodge's quote, but he said, holiness in any form cannot be the ground of election. Right? So most people are ready enough to admit that they're not perfect. Most people are ready enough to admit that. And by definition, all Christians are ready enough to admit they are, that they are not good enough for God outside of Christ Jesus. If somebody thinks that apart from Christ Jesus, they are good enough for God, by definition, they are not a Christian. So all Christians must, by definition, uh, admit that they were not good enough for God outside of Christ Jesus. Right? All true Christians will tell you that they needed to be clothed in Christ's righteousness, and um, they needed Christ to die for them on the cross, or all hope was lost. So everyone will admit um, a certain deficiency and deficit of holiness. Um, but when it comes to the doctrine of election, many Christians want to cling to the idea that there was something in them that God foresaw, some condition that they fulfilled in order that God would choose them, or something that God foresaw in them which prompted God to choose them. And so, though we are prepared to admit some deficiency of holiness, we tend to want to cling to at least something in us that God foresaw which prompted Him to choose us. But as Hodge says, if people were chosen for holiness, then they could not have been chosen because of holiness. So there could not have then been anything good, anything holy in us 
that God saw which prompted him to choose us. Uh, so that's the first argument. The second argument, um, Sinclair Ferguson points out that uh, what I just said, even amongst Christians, there seems to be, as he says, a lingering element of pride that says there must be something, some reason in me to explain why God loves me. He goes on to say, but as soon as we have thought that way, and how hard it is for us crowd centers not to think that way, he adds, we have compromised grace. And compromised grace is grace no longer. So, Ferguson's argument is from the nature of grace. That by definition, if it is gracious, it cannot be something merited. Right? So election is explicitly stated in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6 here, to be to the praise of His glorious grace. Not to the praise of our faith, not to the praise of our receptivity. There cannot be anything in us that serves as the ground of our election, or there is an aspect of deservedness, worthiness, which would render grace no longer gracious, but our due. Because it would create a system whereby God says, if you meet this condition, this will be the reward. That would be implicitly uh, what would be involved in some condition in us, however small, that we must meet in order to attain this grace of election. And Sinclair Ferguson's argument is that if there's something that we need to do in order to receive this grace of election, then it's no longer grace. Third, the time at which God's elect people were said to have been elected is quote from verse 4, before the foundation of the world. Now I just want to ask this question. Does this naturally lead the reader toward conditional election or unconditional election? The timing of our choosing. In other words, if we had no preconceived notions about whether election were conditional or unconditional, and we read that people were chosen before they were born, before the universe even existed, would the impartial reader conclude that election was conditioned upon foreseeing qualities in the person chosen? No. The most natural reading uh, is that election is unconditional. God chose for himself individuals to be saved from their sin. As Romans chapter 9 verse 11 says, and I quote, Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. The fact that we were chosen before the foundation of the world implies that it was an unconditional election. And Romans 9 is just unpacking that theme further. So in this passage, we've seen that election is for holiness and not because of holiness. We've seen that election is said to be gracious, but if it were if election were granted upon the fulfillment of a condition, then it would no longer be gracious, it would be something merited. And then thirdly, election occurred before elect people were created, and thus cannot be predicated upon their fulfillment of certain conditions. And so, we've seen that election is God's choice of certain individuals for salvation, and not others, which is not based on foreseen conditions in the persons in question, but rather it is an unconditional election. So let's consider now the statement that God chose us in Him, verse 4, that is, in Christ. Some have argued that Christ Jesus Himself 
is the only specific object of election. And that whoever comes to faith in Him become elect in Him. An analogy might help here. Let's imagine that a big company like Apple decides to give away 11,000 iPhones. And lo and behold, Kensington Oval seats 11,000 people. And so uh, Apple chooses to give away 11,000 iPhones to all who are in Kensington Oval. And so they, Apple makes a choice. They make a choice to give away. They make a choice of the time and the place that is the means by which these phones will be given away. And they make a um, choice to give 11,000 phones to individual people, all who are in Kensington Oval. And upon arrival, each person entering Kensington Oval does in fact receive an iPhone as promised. And a company representative stands up in front of the crowd and says, you all were chosen to receive iPhones. You have been blessed by Apple. And in such a case, it was not technically individuals who were chosen to receive an iPhone, but Kensington Oval itself was chosen to be the vehicle of the giveaway. And as each individual entered Kensington Oval, he became, he became blessed by Apple and became one of the chosen few receive an iPhone. And so the argument goes, so it is with Jesus. He is the chosen one. He is the chosen vehicle of God's blessing. And He is the elect one. And all who are in Him, therefore, are the ones who can be said to have been blessed and chosen in Him. This is an interesting perspective, and it is worthy of our interaction. But it doesn't hold up to closer scrutiny. Because after all, in this passage, it's not Christ who is said to be chosen, but us. Right? And so something, something just breaks down when you look at the biblical data. It, it, kind of, it kind of makes sense, but then when you go back and look at the scripture, you see that it doesn't say Christ was chosen and all who are in him receive every spiritual blessing. It actually says um, that he chose us in him. Right? And again, if we went to other passages, we could fortify that argument. But I'm just trying to stay really rooted in the logic and the grammar of Ephesians 1. I mean, Romans 9 talks about Jacob very clearly being chosen. Not Christ and Jacob in him, but Jacob. Right? And so, um, uh, the, the text simply does not say that God chose Christ and invited us to be in him. But the text actually just says that God chose us. So, um, that argument that I just put forward just doesn't really hold up to biblical scrutiny. It just doesn't make sense of the biblical data. Nevertheless, the text does say that God's elect people were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So, in some sense, then, God's elect people must have been in Christ before the foundation of the world. In what sense, then, were God's elect people in Christ at that time? In what sense were God's elect people in Christ before the foundation of the world? Let's talk about what theologians have called the covenant of redemption. And remember as we talk about it, the principle that I mentioned earlier, just because a word or a phrase is not in the Bible, it doesn't mean that the idea is not there. So let's talk about the covenant of redemption. At its most basic level, a covenant is simply terms of relationship. 
and Reformed theologians have recognized the existence of a pre-temporal covenant. That is, a covenant made before the foundation of the world. Something that is temporal is in time. So pre-temporal is outside of time. A pre-temporal covenant, a covenant made before the foundation of the world, between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, concerning the redemption of sinners. In eternity past, God the Father and God the Son, with the full agreement of the Holy Spirit, defined terms of relationship to one another concerning the redemption of sinners. Since God has only one will, it's not as if the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit sat down in the boardroom, as it were, and bargained and compromised until finally there was a suitable plan that all three could agree about. That's not the way to conceive of the covenant of redemption. But the covenant was simply the ex explicit expression of the Trinity's united will to save sinners. And the covenant was simply the definition of the role each person of the Godhead would play in salvation. In other words, it's as if the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were fully united in their purpose to save sinners. And um, at the same time, each person of the Trinity agreed that the Father would plan the Son would accomplish and the Spirit would apply. When we look at uh, the Scripture, uh, we can see these. Go and read through. Uh, we don't have time. This is not a sermon about the covenant of redemption per se, so we don't have time to exegete and defend this doctrine. But just go and read through the Scripture and look at um, uh, the way that the Father is said to act in salvation. Look at the way the Son is said to act in salvation. Look at the way the Spirit is said to act in salvation. And what you'll see is that generically there are three categories. That the Father is involved in the planning, the initiation, the choosing, the sending of the Son, the predestining, so on and so forth. The Son comes according to the Father's will to do that, the work that the Father gave Him, uh, to save His people from their sins, those whom, as He says, the Father has given to me, and so on and so forth. And then the Holy Spirit... Uh, takes the things which Christ won for us at the cross and applies them to us. Uh, he he uh, opens our eyes to see the glory of Christ. He um, uh, brings us to faith in Him. He indwells us. He fills us with the fruit of the Spirit. He empowers us uh, for service and so on and so forth. So you see planning, accomplishment, application. And so what we see is this idea that before the foundation of the world, uh, our triune God, uh, as it were, conspired to save us from our sins. And that's, that's basically the idea behind the covenant of redemption. The Father in this covenant, and we're getting back to our main point here, in this covenant, God the Father chose individuals for salvation, appointed Christ Jesus to be their representative, fulfilling the requirements of the law as their substitute in order that He would be justly able to pardon them of their sins and reconcile them to himself. In other words, when God made a plan to save sinners, he couldn't just make any willy-nilly plan, um, uh, some way that sin would just be pardoned without the penalty due for sin being applied, some way for sinners to just be pardoned while overlooking their deficiency of righteousness. Uh, it, if God planned to save sinners, He had to figure out a way to do it justly. That's what Romans chapter 3 says. And so it was God's plan from eternity past to send Christ Jesus to do that. 
to fulfill the law as the representative for all of those whom he had chosen in him, to die the penalty-bearing death for all that God had chosen in him, in order that he might be justly able to pardon those whom he planned to save. And so, listen to Charles Hodges' comments on the choosing of individuals in Christ in Ephesians chapter 1-4. The comments are somewhat lengthy, but helpful. Hodge says, It was in Christ, as their head and representative, that they were chosen to holiness and eternal life, in virtue of what he was to do on their behalf. There is a federal, i.e. a covenantal, union with Christ, which precedes all actual union, and is the source of it. God gave a people to his Son in the covenant of redemption. Those included in that covenant, and because they are included in it. In other words, because they are in Christ as their head and representative, receive in time the gift of the Holy Spirit and all other benefits of redemption. Their voluntary union with Christ by faith is not the ground of their federal or covenantal union. It is rather that their federal union is the ground of their voluntary union. It is therefore in Christ, as united to Him in the covenant of redemption, that the people of God are elected to eternal life and all the associated blessings. So don't worry if you didn't understand all that. Let me try to explain it a little more plainly. God the Father chose specific people for salvation and appointed God the Son as their representative in eternity past. We know this from statements uh, such as this from the mouth of Jesus in John chapter 6, verse 37 and verse 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So this language of the Father giving people to the Son, and every one of them coming to the Son, and Jesus accomplishing the salvation for every one of them, in order that none would be lost, but each one raised up on the last day, uh, is clearly a biblical idea. And it, it is uh, one of the biblical foundations of this idea of the covenant of redemption. God the Father um, uh, gives a specific people to Jesus in eternity past, and God the Son is appointed as their representative. It's clear from what I just read from John chapter 6 that Jesus had a specific people in mind. For if it was simply the definition, pardon me, if it was, if it was simply, pardon me, it's clear that Jesus had specific people in mind for whom he came to earth to act as a representative from what I just read. Let me just read it again to get it clear in our minds because I jumbled that around there. John chapter 6, verse 37 and 39, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Which means that whoever has been given to the Son by the Father will come to him. So there can't be those who have been given who don't come. Right? And then he goes on to say, And this is the will of him who sent me. So again, there's the sending and the coming. Right? That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the Father gives people to the Son, every single one of them will come to the Son, and the Son will see to it that none are lost, but each and every one are raised up on the last day. So it's clear from that, John chapter 6, that Jesus had specific people in mind who were given to him 
by the Father. So God the Father chose specific people for salvation and appointed God as their representative in eternity past. Now this is what Hodge is saying. Uh, those specific people who were given to Christ in the covenant of redemption are saved in due time because of their inclusion in, the, in that covenant, the covenant of redemption, before the foundation of the world. In other words, God sends the Son for them. God sends the Spirit. The Son comes for them. And God the Father and God the Son send the Spirit for them to effectually apply the salvation that He planned for them. Eventually, God's elect people do respond to God with faith and repentance and enter what Hodge calls voluntary union with Christ. We, we do eventually come to have an actual, functional, organic relationship with Christ Jesus by faith. But we come to have that kind of union with Christ in due time because we had a legal, covenantal union with Christ before time according to the Father's plan. It is because of God's plan and purpose in the covenant of redemption to save us that God has sent Christ Jesus into the world. It is because of God's plan and purpose in the covenant of redemption to save us that Christ came into the world. It is because of God's plan and purpose in the covenant of redemption to save us that the Holy Spirit gave us eyes to see the glory of Christ and ears to hear the message of His salvation when we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. In other words, as John Gerstner states so succinctly, faith is the consequence of election, and not election the consequence of faith. In other words, Christian, you have been saved by sheer grace. You were unconditionally chosen for salvation in eternity past. And it is because of God's plan and purpose to save you specifically, among others, but God had you specifically in mind in sending His Son into the world. And Jesus had specifically you in mind when he came into the world. And God, the Holy Spirit, had you specifically in mind. And so he came and imparted new life to you. You were unconditionally chosen for salvation in eternity past. And it is because of God's plan and purpose to save you specifically, along with others, that God set his plan in motion to save sinners. And so in due time, the Holy Spirit gave you a new heart and caused you, as the Apostle Peter says, caused you to be born again. When Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life, he lived it as a substitute for his elect people. When Jesus died a punishment bearing death, he died as a substitute for his elect people. Thus God can justly pardon his elect people because the demands of the law have been satisfied on their behalf. In due time, God's Holy Spirit brings his elect people to an awareness 
of their sin and their need for a Savior. And the Holy Spirit renews the nature of God's elect people so that they no longer resist Him, but willingly listen to Him. And God's elect people begin, as our confession says, to tremble at the threatenings of God's Word and to embrace the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. God's elect people place their faith in Christ Jesus, the only sufficient Savior for sinners, and God justifies them and begins the process of sanctification in their lives, moving them toward the goal for which Paul says here that he chose them in the first place. Holiness produced by His grace, leading both to deeper communion with Him and also leading to praise for the grace that has done it all. This is the outworkings of the doctrine of election in history. The Father planning and sending, the Spirit coming, living, dying, raising, the Spirit coming and applying the benefits and blessings of Christ Jesus to us. This is the biblical doctrine of election. Anything else fails to do justice to the biblical text, and anything else fails to understand grace properly as grace. Sheer, sovereign, undeserved, unmerited, unconditional grace extended to us from before the foundation of the world. That's the biblical doctrine of election. Let's now consider some misapplications and misunderstandings of the biblical doctrine of election. One bad application of the doctrine of election is to become prideful, either about your election itself or your understanding of it. It should not be the case, but sometimes you find that it is the case, that people who believe this doctrine of election are harsh and condescending. And maybe the reasoning is, I understand properly, and those dummies don't. Right? I understand grace, and those idiots don't. Right? Those idiots need to learn more about grace. Right? But when I say it so explicitly, doesn't it sound so stupid? Right? That if the doctrine of election is really a, a message about unmerited, unconditional election, that really you are actually no different than anyone else at the root. That there was actually nothing that God saw in you which prompted Him to love you instead of someone else and to choose you for salvation instead of someone else. Shouldn't that actually do the opposite and not make us harsh and condescending people? But shouldn't that make us humble people? We should not be boastful and condescending uh, toward those who are outside of the faith or toward those who are inside of the faith but have a dis different understanding of the doctrine of election. Rather, we should come alongside as fellow human beings in whom there is really at the root nothing to distinguish us from one another and try to be conduits of God's grace to other people, both doctrinally and practically. Another misunderstanding of the biblical doctrine of election is to think that it eliminates the reality of human choice. If this biblical, if this doctrine of election as I just described it is true and is biblical, then humans have no real choice. We're just robots mechanistically doing what we were pre-programmed to do. But this is based on the assumption that neutrality, unpredictability, and the abolition of any natural limitations are the marks of real choice. Let me explain that. The assumption undergirding that objection is that a human is not making real choices uh, 
about whether he, for instance, is going to breathe air or water, or whether he is going to walk or fly, or whether he is going to eat delicious food or disgusting and rotten food. Right, let me explain that further. Are, fit, are flies free to stop eating garbage? Are fish free to stop swimming and rest in the sand at the bottom of the sea or flip themselves up on the beach? Well, in a sense, yes, and in a sense, no. Right? There's nobody stopping flies from refraining from eating garbage. Nobody is forcing the flies to go eat their garbage. Right? And nobody, nobody is telling the fish, you must not come out of the water. You need to stay in there. Right? Or, or nobody goes down to the bottom of the sea and prods fish that may be resting on the sand and says, no, go swim. Right? There's so, so flies are free to stop eating garbage and fish are free to stop swimming in the sense that nobody's stopping them. Right? And in that sense, uh, nobody is stopping fallen human beings from worshiping God and turning to Christ for salvation. Nobody is stopping us, right? There's no, there's no one in the way, right? God actually says explicitly, uh, right after the phrase that I read earlier, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Um, or pardon me, he says right after the phrase, I got the emphasis on the wrong syllable there. <laughs> right, right after the phrase that I read earlier, which says all that the Father gives me will come to me. Right after that, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And in that same section, uh, where he says, um, uh, I will lose none, but raise them all up on the last day. Right in that section, Jesus says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. God the Father's will is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And Jesus' commitment is to raise that person up on the last day. And so everyone is free to worship God, to turn to Him in repentance and faith, to avail themselves of Christ Jesus, who is held out as uh, the Savior of sinners. Right? Whoever believes in Me will not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever will may come. Right? You are free to come to Christ. But just as there's a sense in which flies are free to stop eating garbage, there's a sense in which they're not. Because they have a nature. And their nature inclines them a certain way. Right? And so what we're talking about is ability. We're not talking about is somebody building a fence or somehow coercing you to do a certain thing or not to do a certain thing. We're talking about ability. Will a fly ever stop eating garbage? No, they won't, right? And this is, when, when the scripture talks about it, this is the way the scripture talks about fallen man, right? And again, I'm not uh, just making this up out of thin air. As it is written, Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. And in case you were thinking that Paul is using hyperbole here, listen to this next phrase. Not even one. This is the witness of Scripture to our deadness. 
in our trespasses and sins. The very nature of deadness is we don't have a taste or an affection for the things of God. Spiritually dead people do not care for the things of God. They don't want the things of God. And so they are free to turn to God in repentance and faith. To turn away from their sins and begin worshiping Him. And to avail themselves of the Savior who was held out to them in the Gospel. The promises of the Gospel are indiscriminate to all of mankind. And we are commanded as Christians to go out and tell everyone. And again, in case you think everyone's hyperbole, Mark 16 says every creature. Right? That's pretty comprehensive. Uh, nobody, nobody is standing in the way of people coming to Christ Jesus in faith. But we're talking about a question of ability. Just the same way as a fly cannot stop eating garbage, neither can a fallen human being stop eating garbage, as it were, and turn to Lord Christ. And so, it's a... Humans make real choices, but we make real choices which are in accordance with our nature. We do those things to which we are inclined. We do the things ultimately. At the end of the day, everyone does what they want to do. Right? At the end of the day, everyone does what they want to do. And so, um, it's a misunderstanding to think that the doctrine of election eliminates real choice from human beings. Rather, the doctrine of election simply teaches us that God has chosen to intervene in the deadness of some and not others. That's what the doctrine of election teaches. Not that humans don't make real choices. So that brings us to another bad application of the doctrine of election, which is refusing to worship. After I've explained this doctrine before in previous contexts, sometimes publicly, sometimes in private conversations, I've literally heard people say, I won't worship a God like that. And this has two major problems associated with it. The first is that God is like that. So you're saying that you won't worship God as He is, but only as you wish Him to be. And secondly, this misapplication, this wrong response to the doctrine of election, is predicated on a bad understanding of fairness. Mark Driscoll. Mark Driscoll. Not Mark Driscoll. Mark Dever. Mark Dever points out that fellowship with God. Mark Dever points out that fellowship with God has increasingly been regarded as a right, even if no one quite states it that way. The thought runs probably something like this: Dever says, "God made me; He's responsible for me, so it is up to Him. In fact, God is obliged to make sure that I have a wonderful existence." End quote. Right? But we should be honest with our hearts if we ever think this way. Dever goes on to say, as Paul understands it in Ephesians, our salvation is no right that we possess infinitely. God is in no way obligated to elect us because He created us. Election is a privilege we are given because of God's overflowing love for us in Christ. And so... If we would say, I won't worship a God like that, presumably it's because we think that that's unfair. It's, true. it's wrong, and we don't want to worship a God who does something wrong. Hmm. Right? But rather than misunderstanding salvation as a right, 
In other words, that which God owes every human being. We must see it as a privilege, as something to thank and worship God for, rather than indicting Him for withholding it from those whom, in His good pleasure, He has deemed fit to withhold it. God does not owe anybody salvation. God does not owe anybody grace. If grace were owed, again, as Ferguson pointed out, it would no longer be grace. And so, to refuse to worship a God who elects, if indeed, that is what the Bible teaches. If indeed, the Bible teaches unconditional election. To refuse to worship a God who unconditionally elects, is therefore to worship God as He is. Or to refuse to worship God as He is. And it is instead to erect a customized and tailor-made idol. Right? Now let me pause here and say, that doesn't mean that everybody who disagrees with unconditional election thinks that that's what the Bible teaches. Right? But if we're confronted with the teaching of Scripture, and if we're seeing it in Scripture, but we just will not go there, right? at that point, that's where we cross over into um, making a God in our own image. Right? So the question is, what does the Bible say? And if the Bible teaches unconditional election, then if we were to worship God as He is, the one true God, then we must worship Him as the God who unconditionally elects. And learn to understand that uh, He is good, and that our definitions of good can't be imposed upon Him, but rather His definitions of good need to be imposed upon us. Another misunderstanding is to think that there's no point to evangelize, or that unconditional election erodes the motivation to evangelism. And this fails on a number of counts. One, Paul is teaching the doctrine of election to those whom he evangelized. Right? In Ephesians chapter 1, he's writing about the doctrine of election to those whom he had previously gone to evangelize and organize into a church. Right? Uh, secondly, the Bible tells us to evangelize very clearly and very plainly. And so if the Bible does teach both unconditional election and evangelism, then we simply must evangelize even if we don't completely understand yet how the two of them go together. There are cases to be made and arguments to be had and discussions to be had to understand that better. But even if you can't reconcile yet in your mind how they go together, you still very plainly ought to do both. Right? And then thirdly, unconditional election actually motivates evangelism. Let me unpack that. If people are as dead in sin as the Bible teaches, take for example what I just read from Romans chapter 3, then unconditional election is the only hope of success. Because how are those who don't seek for God, right, who don't understand, who have turned aside and altogether become worthless, who do not do good, not even one, right, those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, how are they ever going to have a taste of the things of God, right, apart from divine intervention, right? And so we read in Revelation chapter 7 that God... Uh, has redeemed for himself a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Which means that God has chosen some from all over the world to be among that great multitude on the last day. So as we go and preach to people, as we go and communicate the gospel to people and call people to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus, we can actually have great confidence that this is actually going to be successful. As it says, uh, I believe 
That's off the top of my head, I didn't write it down, but I think it's Acts 17. Maybe not. Uh, no, not Acts 17. I always, always, always forget this passage. Um, okay, I'll quote it for you. It says that they preached in a certain place, and all who were appointed to eternal life. No, it's later, it's later, but never mind that now. Here's the point. We can go out and, and proclaim the gospel with confidence that as many as are appointed to eternal life will believe. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I probably would not move to Barbados to start a church if it were not for the doctrine of unconditional election. I'll be honest with you. Because I'm, I'm, I'm coming down here with great optimism and great confidence that as we proclaim the gospel, as we reach out in our families and our spheres of influence and so on and so forth, that God is going to save. God has purpose before the foundation of the world to save. And so I have confidence that as we go and get the message out there, that as many as are appointed unto eternal life will believe. If I did not believe in an unconditional election and I thought that somehow it was up to us to go out and persuade people who, all things being equal, are just as likely to respond as anyone else, I don't know, man. I would look at myself as a preacher. I would look at us as a little fledgling little church and be like, can we really do it? Right? But because God has his people whom he has chosen, predestined to save, I am confident that Christ will build his church. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, but I'm talking about the church at large in Barbados. God will continue to add to the number here in this local church and other local churches around the island, those who are being saved because he has planned it and decreed it and chosen it and predestined it. And so that gives me actually great confidence and great motivation for evangelistic exploits because I'm sure that there will be some uh, harvest. Right? And then lastly, the last, the last objection is that if the doctrine of unconditional election is true, then that will lead to ungodliness and away from holiness um, that people will just live however they want because if they're elect then whatever they'll just be saved right but that fails on a couple of counts as well first is that they're actually elected unto holiness look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him so God has put his sovereign power to work not only for bringing us into the fold, but also for making us holy. And so just as we can be confident that all whom God has purposed to justify, God has also purposed to sanctify. In other words, God has uh, put his hand to the plow, as it were, in terms of making sanctification happen in his elect people, as well as justification. And so explicitly in the Bible, election is not unto moral degeneracy. Election is unto holiness. Secondly, think about this. What does your heart do when you grasp how deeply you are? And whether it's a, a spouse or a brother or a sister or a friend, father, mother, whatever, or whether it's God, when you see the love that another has for you, what happens in your heart? You want to love them back. Right? And so as we think about God in eternity past, Choosing you for salvation and giving his only begotten son for you. 
Right. Sending him into the world in the fullness of time to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem you. That you might receive adoption as sons. When you think about the Holy Spirit causing you to be born again to a living hope, that God actually didn't just have some generic purpose in mind, but God wanted you. That God has purpose to save you. That what happens in your heart? Don't you want to worship? Don't you want to be like Paul and be like, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Don't you want to respond with obedience? Don't you want to, as Ephesians 4, chapter 1 says, 4, verse 1 says, don't you want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling you receive? Wow, if that is how God has loved me, then I want to respond with love for Him. And so, understanding the doctrine of election, not merely that God has made provision for your salvation, but that God has accomplished your salvation and is applying it to you, though you were utterly undeserving of nothing in you, simply because of His sheer sovereign grace and the love that it says here at the beginning of verse 5 that He had in His heart for you. Doesn't that just make you want to live a holy life? The doctrine of election actually leads to holiness, both because God has put His sovereign work to, uh, sovereign power to work for that end, and because that's the natural response of our hearts when we realize how we're loved. So hopefully I have cleared away some of the misconceptions and misunderstandings about the biblical doctrine of election. Let's move here to think about three good applications of unconditional election as we draw to a close here. The first is humility. Again, I have already touched on this, but the biblical doctrine of election should not result in arrogant people who think more highly of themselves than they are. Right? There actually should be no such thing as an arrogant Calvinist. Right? There should not be. That's a sin. Right? If we're um, arrogant, uh, harsh, condescending, uh, belittling towards our, either our brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree on this matter, or towards those who are outside Christ who are lost, on the grounds that we are something, because we understand these biblical doctrines better than anyone else, it probably goes to show we actually don't understand these doctrines very well. Because what these doctrines actually should lead to is an understanding that we, in and of ourselves, are actually not different from anyone else. There was nothing foreseen in me that made me special in God's eyes. It was purely His uh, unmerited, unconditional choice. Right? What do you have then, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, that you did not receive? So we should just be humble, thankful people as we go about our lives. Uh, uh, secondly, this doctrine should be a great comfort to us. Right? Because if we were chosen for salvation before the foundation of the world unconditionally, it means that we didn't meet conditions to get in, and we don't, therefore, meet conditions to stay in. Of course we have to respond with faith and repentance and so on and so forth, but um, those are what you could say antecedent, or pardon me, consequent conditions rather than antecedent conditions of God's gospel grace. In other words, they're the fitting response, the appropriate response. They're actually also the inevitable response. When God has chosen you and given you the new birth, that's what you're going to do. You're going to respond with faith and repentance. It's our responsibility, we need to exercise faith and repentance, so on and so forth. But what I'm talking about when I say that we don't have to maintain certain conditions to stay in, 
What, it, what I mean is, it's not that God chose you for salvation from eternity past, and then you were chosen for the first few years of your Christian life, and then you were unchosen because you made a big mistake, and then you were rechosen, right? And you were chosen again for about a month until you really screwed up again, and then you were unchosen. And you understand what I'm saying? If God has chosen to save you from eternity past, it means that you can persevere with a real bedrock of assurance that your salvation is by grace and not by your works. And you don't have to be always asking yourself over and over again, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Did I do enough this week? Were my devotions consistent enough? Was my repentance sincere enough? So on and so forth. We can very clearly take those behaviors out of the realm of earning and into the realm of response. And understand that we ought to uh, have our devotions. We ought to try to obey God. We ought to exercise faith and repentance. But these are things that we do in response to God's grace already given to us in Christ. Not things that we do in order to get them. And so it is a great comfort to us to know that we are loved by God. That as Deuteronomy says, underneath are the everlasting arms. And he is not fickle. He has planned it and purposed it since eternity past. He will see to it that the work begun in you will be carried through to completion. He will hold you fast. And then thirdly, the last application that we're going to make here as we draw to a close is we ought to worship. This is a response of our hearts. This ought to be a response of our hearts to the grace of God the unconditional election of God. We ought to worship Him for His glorious grace. Look at chapter, chapter 1, verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace. Why did He do all this? Why did He bless us in Christ with every spiritual blessing? Why did He choose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless? Why did He predestine us for adoption as sons? To the praise of His glorious grace. We should just recognize that God has made this so God has done it this way in order that His grace may be seen to be gracious, may be magnified, may be manifest so that we would be under no pretensions whose work salvation is. And that we would give God the glory that He's due for our salvation. That we would worship Him and give Him alone the glory that He is due in salvation that we would be humbled by His grace, we would be comforted by His grace, and that we would worship Him for His grace to us in Christ Jesus.